0: Welcome to Naomi's Table, a Bible study podcast for women. I'm your host, Amy Spreeman. Check out all the Bible studies at naomi'stable.com. Now, here's teacher Beth Seifert with today's lesson in 2 Corinthians. So pull up a chair, open your Bibles, and let's begin. Well, welcome back to our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, ladies. Today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. I've titled this study, Day 11, Guard the Company You Keep. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the context of this section is so important because so often we take this section of Scripture straight out of context and apply it in other ways that, while they may be also true, are not actually what Paul is talking about here, and it does matter. We can apply some things here to other instances but honestly we need to be very careful about it here paul is specifically talking about the difference of the false teachers who are still of the world and those who are true brothers and sisters in christ paul has spent a bunch of time laying down what message a true ministry brings and what the result will be in the lives of those who hear it he's also talked about the character of those in the ministry and what true ministers should expect In terms of suffering and persecution. So Paul has laid this all out, and now we see this application. Don't be yoked with unbelievers. Specifically, Paul is referencing those who have been preaching a false gospel because they deny the true gospel. Those people who deny the true gospel, they aren't saved. They are unbelievers. Don't be joined with them, specifically in the work of God, because guess what? They aren't working for God. You can't join with them because they don't hold to the true gospel. Now, honestly, that should be a huge duh moment. And again, look at the language that Paul uses here, and you can clearly see that in this context, he is talking about serving God. Righteousness belongs to God. You can't be yoked with lawlessness and actually serve God together. Light has nothing to do with darkness. Darkness isn't serving God, so don't fool yourself and think that you can partner with false teachers and actually serve God. Paul drives this home as he points to the contrast between Christ and Belial. Think about that one for a moment. Christ said that whoever wasn't with him was against him. Satan is the prince of this world. If you aren't with Christ, you are against him and you are serving Satan. Period. You are working with unbelievers claiming to forward the cause of Christ, perhaps, but you're serving idols. Paul then reminds us what God said in Isaiah 52, 11, and in Ezekiel 20, 34. God's people will be his dwelling place. This was foreshadowed in the Old Testament as the glory of the Lord would descend in a visible cloud upon the temple when God's presence was there. They could see him dwelling among them. One aspect of God dwelling among them was that they were to come out from the midst of the peoples they were living among. They were not to be partnering with them. They were to be separate. They were to be a holy people, set apart for God. If they would do this, God would welcome them, would be their father, and they would be his sons and daughters. Yet what did we see happen in the Old Testament? We saw the people mix with the foreigners, except their gods, along with the true God, and worship at the Asherah poles and on the high places. In Isaiah, the passage quoted is a prophecy of the true restoration of Israel's priests who are to leave unclean Babylon and return to build the temple. Now, these commands apply, as Paul applies them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in how we interact with the unbelievers in our world today. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel is given a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, God no longer would dwell in the temple, in the actual building, because of the sins of the people and their syncretism, worshiping and serving both him and the pagan deities. And it is in Ezekiel's time that the people were captured, and the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat that God's presence would rest on, was taken off, never to be seen again. The Jews no longer have the Ark of the Covenant. They no longer have the item that, by that system, Allowed God's presence to be in their midst. It's been removed. We, however, have the Holy Spirit of the Lord living inside of us. We are literally the dwelling place of the Lord in a way that the Jews had no idea about. Now, the way in which this passage is often applied, it is used to warn against being married to an unbeliever, and that's an easy and obvious application. We can clearly see from 1 Corinthians 7, especially verse 39b, that a believer has no business being married to an unbeliever. None. You should not be looking for a spouse from among the unbelieving world if you are a believer. Let me make that clear. However, that's not what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians. This passage is also often applied even more broadly regarding our associations with those of the world as we live and work and survive in this world. Now again, Paul covered that in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, where he makes it clear that if there are those within the church who are openly in sin, the church needs to practice discipline and expel the immoral person from their midst, for the health of the church and for the hopeful salvation of the immoral person. The goal isn't to be mean to the one sinning. The goal is to not allow them to enjoy the benefits of the body of Christ, and to heap condemnation on themselves as they enjoy those benefits while not actually being a part of him. The goal is for them to see their own sin, to want to be with Christ, and to be reconciled to him. In 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, Paul explains that we can't stop associating with everyone in the world who is still dead in their sins, or we'd have to go out of the world. It's just not possible to live in a fallen world and not deal with fallen people, and that shouldn't be the goal anyway. Paul exhorts the believers in 1 Corinthians 7 to also remain in whatever situation they found themselves in when they were saved, as long as that situation is not sinful. So slaves? They shouldn't just skip town and run away from their masters. A woman or a man whom God saves, but their spouse is still unsaved? They shouldn't divorce that spouse, unless the unbelieving spouse wants out of the marriage. But going forward as a believer now, the believer should be very careful about their associations. Again, all that is covered in 1 Corinthians, and while it is still applicable and it's related to what Paul is talking about here, that's not the actual context. But there is an application here in our world today that bears explaining. Most of us do have an employer. We are hired to do a job, and we serve God to the best of our ability in our job, serving mostly unsaved employers. Paul is not saying, hey, y'all should quit your jobs. Now, if you work for a company that, for example, insists that all of its employees have to donate to Planned Parenthood, I would suggest you start looking for another job. When the demands of the employer conflict so directly with the commands of the God you serve, you can't do both. However, what about those who are in business for themselves or who are partners in business with someone else? I would suggest that this passage does apply to that situation because a believer whose goal should be to glorify God in all he or she does to honor God in business and in life should be very careful about partnering with an unbeliever in business. The unbeliever's goals may be very different from the goals of the Christian and so a Christian would do well to be wise in partnering in business in that way. As a Christian business owner, your business is part of your witness about Christ. How can you partner with someone who wants to fudge the tax returns or who wants to look for shortcuts in production to save money while lowering the quality of the work? How does that put forth the gospel? How does that let the gospel shine? So as our lives are to be a living sacrifice to God, if you are in a position to run your own business and to set your own standards, do so carefully. I know it isn't easy. I have an uncle who owns two stores in a very liberal state and he has had to make some choices regarding his business that might not seem like good business sense, but in order to be in line with the legal requirements of the state and also to serve and honor God, he's made hard choices. At times that has cost him money, but honoring God is always worth it. Always. All of this, ladies, has to do with our status in Christ. We have been ransomed, bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We no longer live only to please ourselves. We are set apart for God. We see this concept not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. In Leviticus twenty-six, eleven through 12 God sets out the rules for his people to set themselves apart to God. If the people will set themselves apart to him, he will be their father. In those days, they didn't have the Holy Spirit poured out like we do today. We have a different and a far better situation, ladies, with God literally living inside of us, changing our hearts and desires, making us love him and his word and his statutes, making us hate our sin, convicting us of our sin, and always pointing us to Christ. Knowing this and knowing that being set apart has always been God's call for his people, let us be set apart in holiness. We are to be holy for God and holiness matters. That's the point Paul is driving home here. The principle at play here is that we as Christians must consider whether we can willingly submit our wills and actions in whatever relationship or interaction we are in. Can we willingly submit to the authority of a false teacher? Of an unethical business partner? Of the unsaved man or woman you are considering marrying? Where are you primarily being influenced? By those of the world or by Christ's people? We, as believers, are now part of the temple of God, and we serve as priests, according to 1 Peter 2, and we fulfill the prophecy given in Isaiah, as we live for God, separate from the world's uncleanness, yet still living in the world. We must strive to keep the temple clean for the glory of God. No more syncretism, no more pragmatic partnerships to cover our buns and keep our lives comfortable while we dishonor God. Now, I don't always fuss about the chapter breaks that were helpfully put into our Bibles, but this one I'm going to fuss about a little. I really think seven one belongs with chapter 6. That's why I added that in today as well. Knowing who we are in Christ, knowing what is truly promised to us, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This, ladies, I really think is the sum up for this whole section. Here's why who you are yoked with matters. It matters because holiness matters. We are to be God's people, holy and set apart to Him. We are to strive to know who He is, what He is like, what His likes and dislikes are, and what He commands us to do, what pleases God. That's why this matters. We are no longer our own. We were bought with the price. If we are still living for our own interests and our own desires while taking, tacking on our own idea of God to that, we really need to examine ourselves. We are not to add God to our lives as one more bragging right on our resume. No, we are to be setting aside every defilement of body and spirit for Him, for His purpose in our lives, for His glory and praise, because He calls us to be holy as He is holy. That's why we no longer look to the things of the world to satisfy us or to the things of the world to adopt for ourselves by adding the word holy in front of it or Christian in front of what we already know is actually an unholy practice. God has made his dwelling within you. You may think you can do what you want, but you are his and you are to live for him, knowing the grace and mercy he's shown you. So that's where my questions are for us today. How are you yoked to the world? In what ways are you fellowshipping with darkness instead of with the light of Christ? Is there a relationship that you need to examine? Is there an activity that you need to pull back from knowing that the company you are keeping is not in keeping with a holy people? This isn't about being legalistic, ladies. This is about applying the principles we see in Scripture to our lives today and making hard choices to honor God, even when it might cost us something. The cost, ladies, is always worth it. To honor God is always worth it. Christ is worth serving. He's the only one worthy of praise and honor and glory. So examine yourself and your life today and ask God to help you discern where problem areas might be and then ask him to help you to truly cleanse yourself of every defilement for his name's sake. Ladies, you'll find the notes for this study under the Bible Studies tab of the website naomistable.com Day 11 Guard the Company You Keep